Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 102. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Kevin Duffy. He's a hedge fund manager and editor of the coffeecanportfolio.com. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Kevin, tell us how you got involved in the financial markets. Wow. Um, I actually was uh, was 13 years old, and uh, my dad was involved in medical technology, and so he was always a forward thinker. Um, he was, uh, I remember when we were in Boy Scouts, and he would bring bring home computers before the personal computer, and he bought a, uh, a, a calculator, um, one of the first calculators by Texas Instruments. Oh, and anyway, wow. he came home. Yeah, it was a, actually it was about the size of a brick. Yeah, and uh, this was in the seventies. This would have been in the early seventies, and um, it cost seventy five dollars back then, which was a lot of money. And it, all it did was basic calculation. Uh, but um, I remember he he came home once. I was thirteen years old, and and um, I was delivering newspapers, so I was making about fifteen dollars a week. And um, he came home with this idea called Incoterm and uh, stock called Incoterm. And this was, little did I know, this was in 1974, which was the worst bear market since the Depression, since the early 1930s. And um, so I really deliberated over this for a, a long time, for many months. And my dad bought the stock at five and a half. I bought it actually at one and three quarters. And that ended up being the absolute bottom um and the stock went up to 10 and a half in 11 months and so um that was my first experience and after that i decided i would just quit while i was ahead so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you actually you ended up ever made one trade in your entire, entire life, life kevin. kevin i yes <laughs> I, you know i wish i would have done that and i i could have retired uh as the uh, young warren buffett I'm surprised. I'm I'm almost surprised that your first uh, investment uh, decision was uh, turned out to be a turned out to be a, a profitable one. Because I think my my suspicion is that most people tend to learn best from their early failures, and that if you do get a taste for early success, it can be very detrimental to your career. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head, and I think um, that was a part of the problem. Was that um, I well, first of all. I had early early success, but I had enough um, awareness of the times that there was uh, there was so much negativity. And even as a 13 year old, I took all that in and I thought that uh, this was a casino. This is what I had heard. And there was um, there was no reason for me to to really be involved in this. And then the problem was I got. I got involved again a few years later with an idea that my dad had called Tandem Computers, and that stock went up six times. And so now I started getting success, and and then there was a bubble in uh, in personal computer stocks. The IBM PC came out in 1981, and there was a, a boom in home computer stocks after that that peaked in 1983. And this was when I was in college, so. I had all of these uh, positive reinforcing um, uh, situations going on, and so I learned all the wrong lessons. And but then I made my first mistake. Then it was uh, getting caught up in the bubble of 1983, and when that bubble burst, 
that was my first lesson. And I was very fortunate. I ran into somebody who had read books uh, like Market Logic, and he was familiar with uh, contrarian thinking and uh, valuation and, and that sort of thing. And he introduced me to all this. And so then I started putting the pieces together and realizing, okay, this is a this is a lesson. This is your first lesson at the School of Hard Knocks and uh, one of many, I, I'm sure. So did you just bail out of the stocks that we forced out of them or, or did they go to zero? What, what was the lesson there? Well, okay. So um, let's see. This was back in uh, 1983. The, the, so it was the 1982-1983 bull market. And um, I was a senior in college. Uh, I was actually getting a degree in, in civil engineering. And um, I had turned 21, which meant that I was legally qualified to open a margin account. Oh, <laughs> and so, the word margin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, the discovery of margin. A beautiful thing. <laughs> a beautiful thing. So uh, I remember at the time we so there was this idea of diversification that was completely foreign to, to us. And um, I was spending more time uh, on the phone with my, my stockbroker than I was really studying at that point. I was invested in this company called Digital Switch. What I found out later, I read on the cover of the Wall Street Journal that this was one of those speculative stocks that um, Hollywood celebrities were speculating in. Okay. So, you know, this, these are like today, I would look at something like that and it would be a perfect red flag. Right. But back then, of course, I, I didn't I didn't understand that it you know, the stock didn't go to zero, but it it went down. I was forced to meet margin calls and then the stock would rally and my conviction would return. And so it was just a sort of a slow uh, a meat grinder in, in terms of, of destroying capital that I had built up at that point. I had a great expression once, uh, which was. If you don't know who you are as an investor, the stock market is an expensive place to find out. Mm, mm -hmm. A lot of expensive lessons, and I've I've made I've made plenty along the way. We first met, I, I suspect, at one of the symposia in Switzerland that a gentleman called Tony Deeden arranged. It's certainly the first time I can remember meeting you personally, and that's very much a kind of. I don't know, uh, kind of Austrian economics school. Would you would you describe yourself as a, an Austrian sympathizer or as a sort of classical economics sympathizer? Uh, yes, I, I actually, you know, it's funny you mentioned Tony. Um, I I met Tony at a uh, uh, an event in Houston. We both lived in Houston at the time, and this was in the early 1990s. And I had just discovered Austrian economics and the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And the Mises Institute was holding this event, and uh, that's how we, we ran into each other um, and first met officially. Actually, backing up, I had uh, I'd actually sent Tony a resume after the 1987 crash. This was in, in early 1988, and I was looking for a job. And I actually do remember talking to Tony on the phone for about 15 minutes. And I remember him telling me I, I, I actually had I knew nothing about investing. <laughs> so, typically, you, we both know Tony well, so you could understand that, uh, that Tony would say something like that. And he was actually pretty, pretty accurate. So bring us up to date then. You're saying you made this, you talk about the, the bull market of 82 and the crash of 83. Compared to what the numbers that we're dealing with now, that 
wouldn't really be on the radar because and you obviously just mentioned 87 which of course was a much bigger one so what what uh, fast forward us from from then until today and what you're doing yeah today is um oh my gosh uh, so much going on today it's, it's just a fascinating time um you know i think what we've what we've had we've gone from uh right after the 87 crash uh when i was when i was looking for a job in 1988 um nobody was hiring it was the pessimism was so thick you could cut it with a knife yeah and i was i was starting to develop um these very strong contrarian instincts. I did not have the Austrian economics piece at all back then, but I was, and I had, I was just on the verge of discovering it, but I had these strong contrarian instincts and the, the pessimism was really incredible. And part of this was uh, the idea that Japan was in ascendancy and America was in decline. America couldn't compete. We were running these, these massive budget deficits at the time. Um, so it was all doom and gloom. And really, uh, the, the previous bubble was in takeover stocks, the RJR and Nabisco's and that sort of thing. That's what worked from, let's say, 1983 to 1989. And there was a change that was taking place um, at that time to, to really get long growth, get long technology to be bullish on American competitiveness and technology. And you know now we fast forward to where we are today. It's almost a mirror image of all of those things. Um, instead of pessimism, we have we have uh, optimism. Um, we we have uh, technology. Uh, you've got companies that are valued at one and a half trillion dollars. I think we have three companies now in the U.S. that are all technology companies that are valued at one and a half trillion dollars. So we've really we've really come full circle. And um, so what, what I'm doing is um, really trying to focus on um, ideas that are, are kind of away from the crowd. Um, so I think there have been a number of themes, a number of, of threads that you can look at over the last, let's say, 10 years. And um, you know, one of them is clearly all the money that's flowed into passive, index, uh, passive funds and in indexing. And on the flip side of that is opportunity in in value stocks. Um, you know, we can and we can get into as many of these different themes as as you'd like to. So I want to just I'll leave it at that. And you've also recently started a what would it be fair to call it a newsletter, a blog, the coffee can portfolio. Yeah. So I have uh, I run a hedge fund, and um, I also um, I decided to start this newsletter. It's called the the coffee can portfolio. And I really wanted to to do it for a number of reasons, try to reach a, a broader audience. I have people ask me for advice all the time that wouldn't necessarily qualify to invest in a hedge fund. And uh, so it is actually a paid prescription service that right. I, I offered. I launched it um, um, February 18th, and I plan on publishing uh, actually once every two months. So I'm just trying to do something on the side. but. Um, I wanted to create a set of it was a lot of it came from uh, the school of hard knocks. You know, I didn't get a finance degree. I got a civil engineering degree and I, I uh, I've learned a lot of um, painful lessons over the years. And I wanted to share those with people, uh, especially younger people who 
would be just starting out. And I thought if I could save them some trouble and, and um, sort of lay a foundation of some of the, the basic rules that, that I've come across over my career, like one of them, I think rule, and I have these rules now, I think we're up to nine of them. Uh, rule number seven, avoid the crowd at all costs. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, there's, okay. and, and, and so, um, I've, you know, th that's one group that I was trying to um, sort of appeal to. And another group would be more of the do-it-yourself investor and then the professional investor. So that's a, that's a pretty wide net to cast. Yeah, but I, I, it's interesting because ultimately everybody's interested in the same thing, i.e. where's the market going to go, where should you invest your money, et cetera. But just to, just to be clear, you, you do the, uh, you've got the blog, the Coffee Can Portfolio, portfolio, which is a paid blog, but you're also managing a fund at the same time. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's the name of your fund? Um, the, the name of the firm is Bearing Asset Management, and it's actually the Bearing Core Fund. Bearing Core Fund. Okay, great. Right. That's, that's Bearing with an E, just not B-E-A-R-I-N-G. Right. Okay. And just in case anyone wants to make connections between Nick Leeson and the stock market. So the coffee, the coffee can portfolio, as I understand it, is actually derives from a real life story. Is that right, or is that your understanding? Oh, the um, the coffee can portfolio. Um, yeah, Robert Kirby. That's the one. Yeah. The so the coffee can idea is it comes from the the old west and the idea that you would be very selective in terms of your valuables that you would put into the coffee can, and if you needed to pick up and 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 leave very quickly, you would just grab that. And so this came out of an experience. Um, with uh, it was actually a client who had passed away, and and what had happened was he had taken the advice of Kirby, I believe it was Robert Kirby, and um, had invested in all their ideas, but uh, with one exception, he never sold anything. And what they found was um, that this estate and this portfolio uh, actually outperformed by a fair amount. The um, the portfolio that was was maintained and was managed actively managed because that's right because his, his wife had, had had a similar approach but she did all the selling as well as the buying didn't she that, that's my understanding of the story exactly so they had a side by side comparison I mean this this reminds me of the I don't know if it's apocryphal or not I like to think it's true the there was an, a, a, allegedly there was a, a story that. Uh, fidelity brokers in the States did a survey of their best performing clients and the best performing clients were dead. And the second best performing clients were the clients that forgot they had a fidelity brokerage account. <laughs> wow. Now I don't know if that's true or not, but I would dearly love it to be true. And it's not, not, I'm not dissing fidelity. Just it, it, it speaks volumes generally about the industry, which is a, a complete validation of the coffee can approach. Yeah. Um, you know, Dalbar, uh, consulting firm has done studies on this in terms of, uh, of how much, uh, fund flows have worked against, um, performance. And, uh, and this is one of the, the, the challenges with the business is that we have to deal with clients that are, are basically pulling money out at exactly the wrong time and putting money putting money in at exactly the wrong time. So it's a it's a massive headwind. And and I think because I've looked at a lot of the um the asset managers, it's an area that I find fascinating. And 
And I see this if with a company like BlackRock, um, very susceptible to what I call the Dalbar effect. It's a it's a constant headwind to their assets under management. There's a story um, I, I can never I can never remember the source. Who, who, do you remember who, who was the guy that that worked for the Magellan Fund in the '90s, the '80s and '90s? Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch. So there's a story. Someone crunched the date. It might even have been Lynch himself. Uh, and this is one of one of the most famous, most storied um, asset managers in in America uh, over the last 50 years. And his track record, I think, at Magellan was something like 30% per annum over like 20 years or something of that of that nature. But when they crunched the data, they found that the average investor in Magellan didn't actually make any money or, or made it such a trivial amount by comparison. And it's not to take away from um his track record it's it's exactly the, the 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 effect you're talking about which is people are constantly trading this stuff when they shouldn't be they should leave well alone but instead they're they're, they're buying at the high and then panicking and then selling out at the low and then lathering rinsing repeating and it's you know people are their own worst enemies a lot of the time oh it, that that's absolutely the case and and um and this is why i like to pay attention to fund flows because i think they can um you know they can help Lead, and I like to pay attention to what other investors are doing um, because I think they can lead us to uh, opportunities. Um, and you know, it's it's a little bit like um, playing poker, and you're looking around at the at the poker table, and uh, you know, if you don't know who the uh, the patsy is, then it's probably you. Um, but if you can look around and you can see that there are, are, are novices at the table and they're making amateur mistakes then um, you know you're in pretty good shape. And I think that's also what we're seeing today with the, uh, the day traders. And well, it's a, it's a combination. You've got um, people that have poured just in, in insane amounts of money into these passive funds. Um, that's, that's one example. And the other is, is the day trading that's going on and some of the craziness that's going on there. And, and you know, as an active manager, I think this is a great time to become an active manager to to avoid passive investing. Um, and be, it's because of this this poker game that we're all playing. And I think we're holding it's not just that we're holding a pretty good hand, but I think it's it's uh, who we're competing against mm. is uh, to me is very encouraging. There's a great story. I think it's by, by a guy called by a guy at Bluecrest. Um, which was a fund slash hedge fund group. And I think they've taken their, their funds private now, so you can't invest. But th there was a guy there who hired someone, and his strategy was basically, he was in London, but he'd, 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 he'd sign into the, like, the US uh, poker, uh, on, online poker games, just as everyone in the States was, was basically pouring out of nightclubs and pubs and hitting the screens. And he'd just take them all to the cleaners because they were all drunk. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Very clever. So there's always an edge somewhere. There's always an edge to be found. So with regard to the actual investment themes that you are interested in, can you tell us a bit about those? Uh, sure, sure. Um, oh, let's see. Where to start? Well, um, one of the things that, that I like to look for is uh, simple narratives that are, are repeated over and over again. And um, whenever there is, like we had mentioned earlier, the idea of, of America's decline. I remember the period uh, after the 87 crash to the early 90s. This was repeated over and over again. And typically, 
um, when whenever you hear that, my experience has been it is almost always not only an opportunity but a huge opportunity to look for nuance. There's always something missing in a simple in a simple narrative. So. One of the themes right now is, um, you know, I mean, we could go right down the list, um, but, uh, you know, one is obviously the Fed is is all powerful. The Fed will be able to prevent a bear market. Uh, I think we have to question that. Um, that can lead to some opportunities. But another one is that uh, Amazon will put all retailers out of business. And so I spent a fair amount of time uh, focused on, especially the U.S. part of the retail market, and that um, there are some some companies. I don't think people really appreciate um, some of the nuance in retailing. Um, they look at it all as Amazon roadkill, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, for example, the and what's happened is Amazon has basically, from what I can tell, picked the low hanging fruit, and um, also the survivors. Have adapted. They've adopted the um, the omni-channel model, um, where, uh, for example, with the lockdowns, a lot of these companies already had e-commerce operations, and what we saw was the e-commerce operations have done, uh, you know, phenomenally well, much better than than I would have anticipated in terms of of the numbers, and the companies also, we. We tend to focus on skin in the game. That's an, another area. That's another rule that we we uh, we follow. And it just so happens that a lot of these um, survivors in retail are have high insider ownership. Um, so you know you have it. They they were and and one of the things that I've noticed just anecdotally is that companies with high um, high insider ownership tend to manage the business more conservatively. The balance sheet is uh, much cleaner. And so a lot of these survivors were actually, were they were doing well um, before the, um, the coronavirus, before the lockdowns. And I think they were much better prepared to, to deal with that than I think uh, investors gave them credit. And then when when the lockdowns took place, these stocks just got, they were already in, in long bear markets. They were already in basically a four-year bear market. And um, they were already what I thought were cheap. And they essentially got cut in half um, in the in the first quarter. And, and that even lingered for a while. So that, that's, um, that's one of the themes. I mean, we've gotten into a number of themes. Um, uh, another, another would be the, uh, the U.S., uh, the natural gas, uh, especially in the Marcellus, um, we're sitting. We're the U.S. is is basically the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. I mean, we're sitting on the uh, the lowest cost reserves in the world, and um, it's been a prices have been incredibly depressed. So one of the things that that I like to look for is um, blood in the streets, and um, you know this was about as contrarian as it would get. And so when um, when oil prices collapse and a lot of the shale, the um, the oil shale shut down um, there, you have natural gas as a byproduct of that. So you're going to have less supply coming out. And so the stars are starting to align in the uh, I think in the natural gas EMP area. Um, so uh, but a, a number of themes that we've we've gotten into. 
so like, the- like, like, sorry, sorry, Paul. Like any good Austrian, I imagine you have a a, a sympathy for the for the precious metals, the gold and silver. Story. Yeah, that was that was the next one that I was going to bring out. And you know, we could go back to another simple narrative, which is uh, that um, you know the Fed the Fed can always prevent uh, a bear market or a recession, and so they have basically the green light to to uh, to print money. And um, you know, this is an this is an all in bet that it's not just the Fed, but the world's central bankers are are making. And you know, I've I've kind of joked about. The fact that um, before they had already bet the the uh, the house and the kids and the family dog and and now um, they're betting the afterlife, <laughs> you know, and that's to go from the Fed's balance sheet went from 4.1 trillion to uh, 7.1 trillion in a few in a few months, which is um, unprecedented, even going back to 2008, um, and so. I'm a big believer in, in that you've got to own some gold. I think under just about any circumstance, it makes its prudent uh, sense to own uh, at least some gold, maybe 5%. But um, in this environment, I think the end game of all of this, we know that the central bankers are all in. We know that they're going to um, they're going to take this to its uh, logical conclusion, which is probably ultimately a destruction of uh, the currency. I was just, I was, I was just going to ask whether you thought there was a risk that they they lose control of the entire, you know, f- uh, monetary monetary structure altogether. And it sounds like you think that's a that's a that, that that's a possibility. Yeah, I think you know, and as a portfolio manager, investors, you know, we have to look at um, scenarios and we have to look at probabilities. We, you know, we're not looking at at certainties, and so we certainly have to dial in that kind of a scenario and. Um, you know, I, I think there are uh, uh, a lot of scenarios where we just know that the interventions, I think, you know, another thing that people are forgetting about is, and, and they're just, they're assuming that the these uh, the CARES Act and the trillions of dollars that are being just thrown at this economy, that um, that's helping the situation. And, you know, when I put on my, my Austrian uh, lens, I see these interventions as um, undermining the undermining the economic foundation. They're doing um, incredible damage. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine when I was on the beach yesterday. We were he's a banker, and um, we were talking about the PPP loans. And um, and and w- what he was telling me was that first of all, there was something like a trillion dollars, and it was just gone in in a couple of weeks and that um this money is going to he mentioned a client who was a law firm they got a 1.2 million dollar ppp loan and and the challenge with with the these loans is filling out all the paperwork it's very complicated and all the rest of it and i said oh but you know that would be perfect for a law firm and uh and and he said yeah what's going to happen is that uh that probably 90 percent of these loans are going to be forgiven so we just trans we're just transferring a million dollars to a law firm here and there, mm-hmm. and, and it's all these interventions. I don't think people are appreciating the damage that these these interventions are 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 doing. And you know, at the end of the day, we're going to have to we're going to have to deal with that. Just to uh, sorry to I'd like to stay on this subject, but I feel like yeah. I just want to circle back to uh, because I wanted to ask some follow up questions about your tech um, views and, and talking about Amazon. Your view of the high street, given that you feel that 
um, not everything is fodder for Amazon. Do you think stocks like Amazon and technology stocks are overvalued? Because looking at retail stocks as an opportunity is definitely a very, very contrarian view. Well, I think you almost have to just take every stock on a case by case basis. And, and, you know, this was one of the rules that I, I put in it's rule number eight. It's a, it's a um, market of stocks, not a stock market. And so, you know, even within Amazon and Apple and, and Google slash alphabet, I mean, I think we almost have to take a lot of these stocks just on a, on a, you know, case by case basis. And, um, there are some great companies. Um, Amazon, I'm not questioning the uh, the competitive position that they're in necessarily. Um, I'm questioning the valuation with with Amazon, but um, but looking at a stock like Apple uh, to me is very different than than Amazon. And you would look, you know, optically, Amazon looks far more expensive than than Apple, but um, but Apple is, uh, you know, they're selling a luxury product. It's got a one and a half trillion dollar valuation. Um, if we go into a global recession, uh, what is the demand going to be for this, this, you know, high end product that in a saturated market? And you're already seeing with the company like like Apple, um, there is no growth. There is basically no growth right now, and so. Um, and the profitability has remained fairly high, but even the profitability, the operating margins are coming down. So I think a, a company like Apple, which of course is the number one, I think it's the the, uh, the biggest holding in uh, index funds today. Um, there's a, I think there's vulnerability there. And um, it's just, it's that, that everybody has piled into these same names um, and, I think there are going to be some problems there. Yeah, I, I agree with that, the Apple and the Amazon um, view of, of, of things because Apple has got a they've tr- they've actually finally realised that they need to diversify, and they've actually finally realised with their actual hardware that you can't keep charging and overcharging. In, in my view, for products that other companies are providing much cheaper, they're more expensive per. That they know they're a luxury item, so they will charge you more if you want to jump from 32 gig to 128 gig to whatever it might be. And they lost a lot of customers when it came to their their high-end laptops because they really just weren't refreshing fast enough and people just moved to other computers and they're just trying to get them back. And I think also they, they were late to the, the media area where they, mm-hmm. they start the Apple TV much later than everybody else. And yeah, they've got a big war chest and they can get all these big stars in. But I haven't got Apple TV. I'm not interested in it. I've got enough now with Netflix and, and other stuff. I, I personally, I, it's going to be very hard to try and pull people into that, that eco space. But, you know, it's possible that they can do it because they're Apple. But, you know, they really are, they are, really are risking... Um, that they're playing in a highly saturated market and it could be very expensive. Just, uh, just sorry, just sorry to interrupt, Paul. Just anecdotally, I've just upgraded my smartphone and it's offering me a year's free Apple TV, which is presumably how they're going to try and get people in, which okay. is by, by basically giving it away and then hoping they get hooked and then, and then renewing at a commercial level. There's one thing I would very briefly interject on the topic of Amazon versus Apple, for example, and it's that Apple, I think, 
is potentially vulnerable to a narrative in relation to um, the way things are going to likely change geopolitically. Amid all this, what I can only describe as nonsense, so there's a social justice warrior virtue signaling over Black Lives Matter and all the rest. I don't know if you saw it, but there's a guy here, a historian called Neil Oliver, and he put out a very good little piece to camera about a week ago pointing out that, and there's a very specific point to this, pointing out that it's all very well you know, bloviating and emoting over the fate of people who were slaves hundreds of years ago. How about people who are slaves today? How about child slaves digging out? I think the example he used was cobalt. So I think most smartphones contain cobalt, or if it's not, it's some other, you know, rare or precious um, metal. And he said, well, th there, are, there are children who are slaves dig digging this stuff out of the ground in wherever it is in Africa. How about someone takes a stand for those people and that they're alive now? And I just think that, as a manufacturer, albeit one that's heavily outsourced to places like China, Apple is acutely vulnerable to a change in the narrative with regard to China, as a lot of companies are, including BlackRock. Because I mean, one th I don't know whether um, Kevin, you're impacted by this this dread acronym ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governments Governance Regulation, but it's a sort of big, big thing here, albeit probably more for traditional funds than for offshore funds or sort of less lightly regulated funds. But it strikes me that any anybody who is investing seriously in China now is is basically well, if they say if you're if you're supping with the devil, you know, take a long spoon or something. I, I for any number of reasons I would be touching China with a barge pole now. It's yeah, it's interesting that you bring up ESG, and uh, I know it's 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 bigger in in Europe, but um, I think ESG kind of fits in with the idea of the poker table and the way. The way people think, certainly the younger portfolio managers out there um, are schooled in in political correctness and virtue signaling a lot more than, you know, somebody my age. I'm in my late 50s um, where uh, I, I actually remember political incorrectness. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, yeah, ESG is uh, I, I think what's happening right now is that. You know, this is another. We're we're in a series of bubbles, right? We're we've got this passive bubble. Um, we've got the uh, the the Fed bubble. We've got the everything. You know, the bond bubble. The uh, the bond bubble and is really at the epicenter of of this bubble. But we've also got a uh, this political correctness that is um, is completely out of control. I mean, the way the way I, I don't know if this is where the way you're headed to. The the way I would describe it is. I, as an asset manager, I would much rather have the, the widest possible opportunity set because that's surely going to give rise to more opportunities. Whereas if you're saying, well, yeah, but we, we can't invest in energy or natural resources or, you know, and the list just goes on and on and on. So in the end, you're just looking at a, a tiny little sliver of the market that's deemed to be politically correct. It's like you can't invest in 90% of the market. So good luck outperforming there. Yeah, absolutely. That That's definitely where I'm going with this is that uh, – um, that there, this is creating by the the absence of of buying and all the divestment that's going on. It, it's somewhat reminiscent of the tobacco stocks back in the '90s, um, but on a much much greater scale. And uh, it's it's creating you know really low risk opportunities. Um, but it's getting crazier and crazier. I just read something in the uh, this weekend's Barons, and they were talking about. Um, the Aunt Jemima 
uh, pancake mix and <laughs> Uncle Ben's rice. They're removing this from the supermarket shelves. And, you know, this is just the latest narrative, right, that's, that's blowing through. And it's amazing how people quickly went from the pandemic to the Black Lives Matter. I've been shocked, even with some of my family and friends, um, I, I did not realize what what some of their attitudes that they thought that this is a, as big a problem as they think it is. Mm. But um, I'll, I'll just read you this. I think it's really interesting. Um, this is Randall Forsyth in Up and Down Wall Street in Barron's. He said, um, uh, it's talking about the action of, of day traders on platforms like, like Robinhood. And he said, and how it's moved from vaccine stocks and, and COVID stocks to, to now, um, uh, it's stocks that have to do with uh, with uh, um, African Americans, and he said, for instance, the Class A shares of Urban One, a multimedia company that operates radio broadcasters targeting primar primarily African American listeners, increased nearly 20-fold in the past week, the $36.30. So that's the kind of insanity that's going on, and I think people are, you know, they're ideologically wired for um, intervention and for this political correctness. And so they're, they're very susceptible to these narratives. These narratives are like viruses that, that run in and they get, they're very susceptible and they're making um, really amateur mistakes as a result of that. So I think it's, you know, for, for us, it's, it's great news because we're playing poker against a bunch of rookies. I noticed that Ben and Jerry's has taken an aggressive stand in favor of defunding the police which is not what you'd expect an ice cream manufacturer typically to do. <laughs> so broadly speaking, then, with regard to the, the overall market, if, if we're going to get a, an inflationary move because of what, what the Fed are doing, that would broadly imply that the market is going to go up. Yet, obviously, the, the, the market is, inverted commas, overvalued at the same time. So it's, it's a circle that is very difficult to square. What's your take on where the market could go, even if we have a massive dose of inflation? Do you think we've got deflation coming, perhaps? I think we could go through uh, multiple acts in this play. I don't think I think we can focus on the end game, which is probably um, inflation and and hyperinflation and the destruction of the currency. But how we get there. Um, that's the big question. How far away do you think we are from that? I really don't know. Um, we could be years away from that. I, I suspect it, it will. It, it could be years, but I think we have. Um, you know, we we have to go through uh, a process, and I think at the end of the day, um, we really have to. It's a market of stocks, not a stock market, and I think we have to sift through. Um, businesses, and we, we have to look at them as being either fragile or robust, are they going to be able to withstand a number of shocks, whether they be inflation, whether they be government shutdowns, whether they be uh, recession? Um, they're, we're, we're, just, we're going into this massive storm, and they're going to be hit with everything from every direction. So um, I think that's the process. As an investor, what I'm focused on is not that the stock market is going to go up or the stock market's going to go down that we'll have a deflation. I think what's going to happen here is we'll have a weeding out process. We're going to have bad businesses that are going to get wiped out. And we have businesses that during the boom, 
They were drinking the Kool-Aid. They were taking on too much debt. Um, they became very fragile. And despite all the handouts and all the propping up, it's not going to matter. These, these businesses are going to get um, destroyed. They're being destroyed. Um, I mean, we saw this in 2007 and 2008, all the advantages that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac got, and yet the shareholders got wiped out. So I think that we could have an inflation, and at the same time, that um, shareholders in a number of companies, like Boeing, I would not want to touch Boeing right now, even though they were able to raise $25 billion in debt at very, very cheap um, interest rates. On the other hand, I think this is the time that we really want to be focused on uh, what Tony Deaton talks about in terms of permanency, um, independence also, independence of, of the government. You know, you have a lot of businesses that are increasingly tied to the government, like Facebook and like, like Google, and I think that's creating vulnerability because they're censoring and they're doing things that are, could ultimately turn off their, their customers. So, um, you know, that's what I think is as investors, the primary thing we ought to be doing is 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 separating the wheat from the chaff and really trying to focus on on quality and companies that are going to be able to withstand all these different um, these different uh, headwinds that they're they have they have to deal with. And then also you could put into that um, that grouping would be gold. That um, I'm not I'm not going to look at the fiat currencies. I think. In terms of money, in terms of reserves, that portion portion of the portfolio that uh, you know that gold has has a place there. Well, to, to to quote Tony again, I mean, gold gold matches three of the, his requirements, which is independence, scarcity, and permanence. He's got all of them. You said you were yeah, accumulating um, quotes. The, the, one of the beauties of Twitter is that it's it's an amazing resource for for quotaholics. A great one that you may have seen already. This is from a guy called Joseph Mauro from earlier this month. My son just told me that he can only play Fortnite in the evening because half of his squad started trading. He is 10 at Robin Hood app. Hashtag true story. No way. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that. Yeah. I don't believe that. Well, the thing is, even if that one isn't specifically true, I think you can make a plausible thesis that, you know, probably, we were talking about people probably picking cryptocurrencies. off. Cryptocurrencies. Well, probably... no, well, what I was going to say is, is, is I, I can perfectly happily believe that one of the things that's driving equity markets now is all the people that in the States and elsewhere would previously be betting on sports. Because there's no sports, they're betting on the stock market instead. Mm. So you've got this massive day trader fraternity that's just, just, you know, they're like fat kids jumping into the stock market swimming pool. Well, yeah. and also they've been, giving, they've been given $1,200 checks. And if they're unemployed, they've, they've been given an extra $600 a week to stay at home and day trade. At, well, that runs out at the end of July. So yeah. That's the really scary thing. That's where we get into the realms of things like MMT, modern monetary theory, and, and the sort of trial run for universal basic income as well, isn't it? Yeah. So just to go back to, you mentioned Boeing as a stock, and you also mentioned contrary opinion theory, which is one of the most reliable methods of... Um, timing the market, but and it's something that obviously long-term investors and and traders know know very well. But the the other side of that is knowing when something is contrary, when something is a contrary opinion trade, because you could look at Boeing right now and say, well, look, look everybody hates it and it's been beaten up. Isn't that doesn't that fit the bill? Yeah, that's a it's a good very good point. And um, what I did was I actually created um, two indexes that um, 
and beginning at the uh, beginning of the year, the COVID winners index and the COVID losers index. And uh, Boeing was actually in the losers index. And, and you can imagine some of the, the stocks that would be in there. I think I had uh, Gap Stores and Kohl's, a department store company. Carnival Cruises. Carnival, Carnival was in there. And so anyway, the gap between the, the winners, and the winners had um, Netflix and Zoom and Amazon, uh, Clorox, uh, Peloton. And so the gap at one point, uh, the gap between the winners and the losers was, I believe it was 85%. Um, so, you know, that'll give you an idea of, of how, how extreme the, um, the dichotomy was. But within those, and so I was sifting around through the losers looking for opportunity, but um, and so from a contrarian standpoint, I think, you know, to your point, Paul, is that you're in the right area, but now you have to go through. I, I'm not a contrarian just for contrarian's sake. You know, I want to, especially in this environment that, would I, that I think is going to be a very difficult environment, I want to own the best quality. And I think one of the lessons that I've learned over over time in this business is that um, you're you're better off focusing on on quality than on value. Value is really the last thing you look for. And so how I use contra the contrarian uh, philosophy is I want areas that are that the crowd has completely abandoned. And then I want to try to sift through that and find high quality businesses with um, with a, a, a sustainable uh, competitive uh, advantage. Um, but and that are that have strong balance sheets. So, you know, Boeing may end up being a good investment. I can't imagine that it will, but it's not something that I would be interested in because it doesn't check off those boxes. It has uh, doesn't it has too much risk in terms of of the balance sheet and also the just the, the the mistakes that management has made over time. And in terms and in terms of the uncertainty that we're currently living through and is unlikely to go anytime soon, it's difficult to argue that. Uh, it's difficult to make the case that Boeing has any kind of margin of safety. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the key right there. There is no margin of safety. And, you know, this, the thing is, you can look in the contrarian areas, these, quote, non-essential businesses that have been shut down. And like I said, in the retail area, I'm able to go through and find businesses that I think do have a margin of safety. They have high insider ownership. They have great balance sheets. You know, we did a little study when we were stress testing the retailers. And what we found was we, we made certain assumptions that the lockdowns would continue, that the e-commerce e operations would continue. Um, and, and I found that they had, that, that the, uh, the businesses could keep operating um, for anywhere from one to four years. And that's, that's with everything shut down, which we obviously we know that's not going to happen. So I think those businesses, I was really surprised at um, how robust these businesses were. But yet you look at something like Boeing, and there's no way that Boeing could survive a, a shutdown for, for any amount of time unless they got bailed out. So you mentioned that there are some businesses out there that were kind of weak and effectively will this pandemic or this economic situation will cull them. Um, but the fact that money is so cheap has meant that 
they were in that position before and and not a lot has changed with regard to money being cheap. So the risk is that there could be more companies on this kind of permanent life support that means that the system will never clear out or will not clear out in the immediate future or within the next year or so. And that has got to be bad for productivity. And it seems to be something that Western economies are facing as a big problem. Does that make you want to look outside of the the US to other economies such as you Japan? Know, the far... <laughs> yeah, as uh, yeah, it's, Tim said, Japan. No, it's it's a good point, and um, I, yes, I, I think it, it does make sense to have you know be unconstrained and to be able to look elsewhere. But you know, also, it is a market of stocks. It is a market of of industries, and not every just because money is cheap doesn't mean that every industry has access to cheap capital. And I think this goes back to the contrarian philosophy: is that if you invest in an industry that is really out of favor, it also means they don't have access to to cheap capital. And so I can look at the retail business. I mean. If you want to start a retailer um, uh, or expand a retailer in uh, in the malls, let's say, or even outside the malls, um, it's going to be very expensive. If you want to build a gold mine, um, its capital is 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 expensive. If you want to uh, go drill in the Marcellus, you know, it, capital is extremely expensive. So there are these these pockets out there. Where money's tight, you know, the, the, despite the fact that money is incredibly loose right now, there there are areas where money is tight, and I think that's where you want to gravitate towards, and you want to avoid the areas where money is 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 too cheap. That's a fair point, isn't it? That the, the money's cheap for banks, but as individuals, what's the average credit card interest rate? It's not zero percent. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's actually gone up a lot in recent times. So. One would have expected it to have gone down, but it's steadily risen. And I think it's risen with the the risks that have increased of people defaulting. So it kind of makes sense. And it also highlights the fact that just because you've got low short-term interest rates, it doesn't mean there isn't increasing pressure on the system. It also doesn't mean that longer-term interest rates can't rise either because they're based on bond prices and not short-term interest rates. So that that's where I think the big kind of correction will start to get out of hand potentially as we've i think all alluded to with bond prices being potentially overvalued if interest rates start to go up that's a massive problem at the moment yeah and I, you know i think the market it despite the attempts at the government to intervene the market does find a way and i think i i always have this this faith that uh, it's like water running downhill. I mean, it will find a way um, despite all the attempts to prevent that from happening. Yeah, don't buck the market, it will buck you. I, I believe in that, but I also see that there's there's a, um, there's a been a distortion of the market for so long now. It's, it's just, it's very difficult to, to kind of look at it with any anything other than well okay they're just going to keep throwing more and more money at this you know you would have expected some of these companies to have either had their policies found out or you know we had Dave Gollum on the show and he was saying that there was a big percentage of S&P companies before the pandemic this was last year that were basically not making any money they were they were making money because they could borrow money cheaply which is just 
insane. But yet that doesn't necessarily mean that their stock prices are going to go down. So if you try and bet against them, you're kind of betting against a wall of money and that's trying to prevent that happening. So it's it's a very difficult situation. And I can highly sympathize with the idea of just going down to basic, is this company making money? Is it well run? And does it provide is it a value stock? As you both, you and Tim both both say this is these are the rules and and uh, does it fit those rules and kind of have put everything else to one side but for the for the average kind of investor who's who's just kind of throwing money into the market and saying well it's going up i may as well just just stay with it um trying trying to make sense of some of these valuations is just incredible i mean tesla for example i, I can't i mean technically i could see that it was going to go into a new high but I couldn't explain it, even if I tried, unless there's something else about that business that I just don't know about. Yeah. You know, and th- this idea of we, we are so detached from reality right now. And I guess it's the the optimist in me believes that um, that that is not sustainable. You know, we can ignore um we can ignore it, we can ignore reality for a while, but we can't ignore um, the consequences of ignoring reality. And so, you know, at the end of the day, reality is going to rear its ugly head. And all I'm trying to do is I don't have to necessarily bet on, on this company going down or this company being susceptible. You know, I can avoid them. I, I'm not forced to short sell the, these stocks. Um, and I'm trying to envision what, what the world is going to look like and that I, one of the things that I do feel pretty confident in predicting is that the world of Santa Claus economics for government is coming to an end. Um, we're in the blow off stage when we see um, MMT and we see that there's this pervasive feeling that um, that the states can lock down their economies and the federal government is just going to come in and bail them out. and that. Um, that the government can just make everybody whole. A pandemic comes along and, oh, it's not really the fault of, of these businesses. And the government, you know, has infinitely deep pockets. And I think, I think we're at, we've sort of crossed the Rubicon into going from Santa Claus economics to reality. I think that is a, a an absolute certainty that, um, that we're going to see state governments, local governments, federal governments that are now constrained. They're going to have to lay off people. They're going to have to make really difficult choices in terms of do we fund the police? Do we fund education? Do we, if you're if you're the United States, um, do we fund an empire with all these military bases all over the world? Do we pay people's pensions? Or do we pay people's pensions and the social security checks? And I really believe that over the next five or 10 years, um, we're going to be in a very different world. And so I'm just trying to envision what that world looks like, one of um, of actual limits, economic scarcity. And, um, you know, who is bringing something of, of value in that world? You, meant, you mentioned short selling, uh, Kevin. Do you actually sell short or is it pr- primarily a long only approach? Uh, I've been known to do that <laughs> in a past life and actually in a present life as well. But it's not something I advocate in the coffee can portfolio. I wanted to keep it 
pretty plain vanilla. The only thing that I do advocate in the coffee can is the use of portfolio insurance yeah. from time to time. Um, and again, it's going to be very plain vanilla. Um, I did that in in uh, when we first got this launched in February because I thought I thought there was considerable downside. And then um, we ended up so we owned a couple of bear funds and we sold those uh, when the market fell apart. And now we've been we've been putting those back on. But uh, in my fund, we actually we tend not to actually short. We we use put options to do the same mm. thing. Um, but um, so it, yeah, it is to try to basically hedge the portfolio and even over hedge. And I think right now the disconnect between reality uh, between stock prices and economic reality is as great as I've ever seen in my career. So we're maximum short. I mean, one of the reasons I ask is I, I'm indebted to someone who is a mutual friend of ours, Jonathan Escott, who I know via again via Tony, and he he put me onto this word apophatically uh, and apophasis. And you are investing apophatically if you just come to a conclusion that, you know what, this is too difficult, I'm not going to play. And I would say that right now that describes probably about 90, 95% of the market as far as we're concerned, which is far too difficult to see you know, the economic rationale. The valuation doesn't stack up. But that said, we wouldn't bet against it because we're in a world where strange things happen all the time uh, because of the distortion of monetary policy. So... From that perspective, I, I mean, I've never shorted stocks and, and I never would because, you know, I just don't have the skill set or the, probably the temperament to do it. Um, but that doesn't matter because there's so, you know, I don't know how many listed stocks there are globally, but I can believe there's getting on for 100,000. You know, well, that's, 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 that's 100,000 opportunities and that's just on the long only side. So you don't, I, I think people sometimes feel, individual investors sometimes feel obligated to be, to be doing something. Um, whereas my take would be if there's, you know, if you, if there's nothing to be doing, just, just, you know, just, just keep the money in the coffee can. Yeah, no, I think that that's so true. Um, it, it's people feel like they have to do something and it's so important to know what your circle of competence is. And the reality is that so few people really have the temperament to be short sellers. It, it is, it's very rare. And, 99% of people probably shouldn't do it. Who do you look to? Like, for example, Warren Buffett, what he's done recently is stayed out of the market. And so there's this big kind of feeling that the market is definitely overvalued if such a long-term investor has decided to to refrain from investing and take a lot of of his chips off the table. Do you follow him and or others? I follow a, a number of, of managers. Um, I am... I am fascinated by, uh, I think I can always learn something from, from somebody else. And um, so I, I, I think of it as, I remember um, Kobe Bryant, he, um, he would study different, uh, different basketball players like Charles Barkley or Michael Jordan, and he would try to incorporate different moves into his own game. And I think as investors and as portfolio managers, that's what we, we naturally do. We, we try to, you know, we, we work on our, our game, we work on our investment process, and we try to pull in, you know, different moves that, that other people use. So, um, you know, there's a lot that you can learn from Warren Buffett, and yet there's a lot that I would want to avoid. Uh, you know, I would not want to subscribe to necessarily his his uh, economic views, and I think that he might miss 
um, some of the uh, some of the twists and turns and 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 some of the, you know, some of the downside that is is coming. But um, there's certainly in terms of circle of competence and margin of safety and that sort of thing and competitive moats and buying quality. There's a lot that you can learn from Charlie Munger and and Warren Buffett and uh, I you know so many so many people so many great people. I I've been fortunate. Um, you know, Tim and I met through Tony Deaton. Um, I've been fortunate to know, know Tony, his good friend, for a while. And and um, I wish when I was younger, I would have listened to him more because I think uh, he's, you know, he's he's brilliant. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've tried to soak up a lot of uh, some of his knowledge over the time. So there's just all, you know, so many people out there. I think you can always learn about their process and but also what they're doing right um whether they're 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 gravitating towards certain industries that can that can generate ideas for you as well because you respect their process it, it seemed like a um a bit more than just kind of following perhaps whether you want to be a value investor long-term investor or, or anything like that that um that that we've seen from his recent moves I mean, his his actual selling of of his stocks and moving even more into cash. Many people are saying that's, that's a sign that the market is going to crash. And Ray Dalio has been saying very much the same thing, that this is going to be worse than, you know, the 2008 crisis, which is something that kind of Tim and I have alluded to, to a long, for a long time, but it just seems like, well, whatever happens that you've, you, the Fed's got your back and it's, um, in 19, I know you've got the quote on your on the Coffee Can Portfolio website, which I think is great, um, that that there was the, the uh, what was it, the quote just before the stock market high in 1929 that the Fed's got your back, you know, exactly the mm-hmm. same thing, um, just before it crashed. But this is this has been something that's that's literally been going on for, you know, since 2008. In 2008, um, as the market rallied, one would have thought, "Well, hang on, they haven't solved any problems here. This, this is this is just kicking the can down the road." And here we are, sort of twelve years later, and they've kicked that can a pretty long way. And they seem to have done a, a you know, exactly the same thing with a massive crisis. Just more money's been chucked at the problem, and and so this this big correction's just been put down, um, been you know postponed yet again and so and like you say we have we have like a situation where the market is so far removed from reality uh for most people who've been watching it since the days of 80, 88 and 87 and and before like yourself it's um we've never seen a time like this um but what will actually trigger the correction and and that's that's um it's a bit of a sea change to see that that someone like Buffett has has done this, and I, th- I think that's that's made me sit up and listen because all the other all the other times, like in two thousand and eight, he was just piling in, and again, like you say on your website, the every correction, every panic is an opportunity to buy, and he certainly made great use of that. But I think it's a bit of a warning sign, no matter what you think about his investment approach, that. He's pulling so much money out of the market. I th- I think his lack of activity speaks volumes. Personally, you know, to your to your point, Paul. Just gonna just gonna squeeze a hoary old quote because, like Kevin, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of hoary old quotes. This is on the topic of an unappreciated mentor at an earlier stage, you know, in your life. 
And this is attributed to Mark Twain. It's one of my favourites. And, and I don't know if it's actually his, him or not, but it's attributed to him. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in seven years. Oh, I love that <laughs> one. That's so, that's <laughs> so good. That's yeah. so good. Yeah. But so do, so do you follow Ray Dalio at all? I tend not to follow Ray Dalio. I've tried to make sense of uh, some of his uh, economic prognostications. and Gnomic, and- gnomic utterances. Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't make. He's all over the map. I mean, I don't think there's much <laughs> consistency there. Really? At all. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I. You also talked about fun flows, and I was just interested. How do you actually monitor fund flows? What's the method of doing that? What um, what I do is I'll look at um, mutual fund flows and um, ETF flows, and so um, uh, and you can also Morningstar breaks out um, active versus passive flows. Um, So there's a number of different ways to do this. I actually will look at um, individual ETFs. And so I can get a sense for, so for example, over the last four months, we've had record inflows into high yield ETFs. And so certain things will will jump out uh, in that respect. It's not a perfect contrary indicator by any sense and you know you have to be careful of you're only getting one one part of the the market so you have to take that into consideration but um you know there are cer- certain things that are pretty obvious the the uh the trend towards uh passive investing and and money just continually pouring out of um of active funds over the past five and even ten years that's probably the the clearest one and there are parallels. Um, if you go back to the 2000 um, period, uh, the 2000 top of the tech bubble, there were um, the money, the inflows, there was this big dichotomy between the old economy stocks and the new economy stocks. And so um, the, the money was flowing into um, technology funds, technology sector funds, aggressive growth funds, growth funds, and it was coming out of bond funds. Um, and equity income funds, value types of funds, that's that sort of thing. Um, so, so uh, you know, I think that that's essentially what um, what what I'm I'm trying to do. And also, you see a lot of different things like um, like the uh, um, yeah, maybe maybe not a, a rabbit hole we want to get into, but just looking at the the passive uh, business, you you do see a trend in terms of. The uh, low fee funds. So right now, investors are extremely aware of fees. They are very fee conscious. So even within, let's say, the emerging markets funds, um, they will they're pulling money out of the high fee, high expense uh, ratio funds, and they're putting them into the uh, low expense ratio funds. So the the message that um, John Bogle had, which is basically fees matter. That is something that um, I think investors are extremely aware. And I think it also shows that what can start out as a good idea can can be taken um, taken too far. And so I think um, active management, where obviously you have to pay up for active management, I think um, you in this case today, you get what you get what you pay for. and and it's and it's also all about the net return. So with regard to your rules, and I, I, I like a lot of them. Um, 
The first one is find the parade and get out in front. What's a good example of that? Uh, well, these examples are always obvious in, in hindsight. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are you, yeah, I mean, I think the, so when I think back on, and this is um, the, the reason, one reason why I decided to call that rule number one was that um, when I was growing up, this was something I we heard from our dad. Okay, he was very interested in technology. Um, he was a big fan of Alvin Toffler, um, the Third Wave, and so he and he was very early in terms of the PC revolution, right? So, um, so he was always forward looking, and he, and that's something that we heard when we were kids growing up. Always find the parade and get out in front, and. So he was early. He was one of the first people to buy an IBM PC in 1981. And um, I remember when I started my first firm in 1988, he kept telling me about this company called Dell Computer. Uh-huh. And um, they were they were private at the time. And he really liked not only were they in uh, in the, the PC area, but they had this new mail order model where they were essentially cutting out the middleman. And um, and we ended up investing in that after they they came public and and the stock just uh, was unbelievable. I don't know how many times that the stock went up, but um, it, it was uh, it was just a huge winner. So um, yeah, I think that's the the basic idea. And you know now kind of well, how do I how do I stick my neck out today? And and what are what are some of the areas? It, it is a little bit more difficult. I, I almost feel like we need a bear market to kind of create the ideal situation for finding the uh, getting out in front of the parade. Um, I, my sense is that um, if we look at the over 65 demographic, it's going to be the we know it'll be the fastest growing uh, demographic around the world. And so. Um, any solutions there? I, I tend to believe that uh, genomic sequencing, the sequencing of of, of the, the the genome and all the data that we're going to be collecting, um, I my sense is that that's going to lead to opportunities five years, ten years down the road. And so I'd want to be positioned there as an example. Yeah, that's very interesting because I, I recommended a documentary that you probably can't get because it was on the BBC, but it was exactly about that and it was talking about it being bigger than the internet and that's always stuck with me that um that yeah it's just what we will be able to do and it was that kind of fear of technology there always seems to be this this kind of fear boundary that we're we're pushing with this stuff and you know it's like now machine learning and intelligence and you know robots are going to take over the world and it's just no, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen like that. I mean, there will be disruption, but there will be also huge opportunity. But uh, we've always got to feel like there is there is some kind of fear towards this stuff. But actually, there's more opportunity than than we realize. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this happened with biotechnology as well. There was a lot of fear of, you know, Frankenstein creating monsters and and the the industry was had to come up with standards. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's typical. Uh, anytime you you go into uncertainty, people are going to focus on on the downside. And um, you know, the reality is that technology 
can be used for good and it can be used for for harm as well. And and if society is is going down the wrong road, then doesn't really matter. I mean, that technology will be used for for harm, but it's not really the fault of the technology at, at all. Guns don't guns don't kill people. Politicians do. Yeah. Well, and there, you know, that's another. You mentioned guns, and I was been thinking about this a little bit more with all the unrest and and the um, uh, the rioting and the looting going on. And you know, and we we had talked earlier about um, government hitting a wall in terms of of its resources. We're going to see, I think, as a part of that, um, a lot of areas that will be privatized, and one of those is going to be defense. Um, I'm not saying that that uh, the police will be completely privatized, but uh, I do believe that what's come out of this is is people are realizing that um, when it comes to defense, they're ultimately responsible for their own defense. Mm. And um, you know, this this has been gun ownership in the United States has been a pretty long running upward trend, and my guess is that 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 will continue. Mm. So, what do you think, Tim? Should we go to media picks? Let's let's go for it. Let's go for it. Okay, Kevin. Whatever your media pick is, I'd love to know what your favorite investing books are. Hmm. I'd, do, you want, let, do you want me to give you? Do you want me let, to give you a few a few seconds, Kevin? So if I let, kick off, and I'll give yeah, you some time let, to think. Yeah, let Tim kick no, off with his, and then then we'll come back to you. Give you give you a moment. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's funny you you asked that because I don't think I don't think the 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 ideal investing book has been been written yet um well you could write it i I don't know that i'm i'm the one to write the the book i've i've got some some other ideas i'm very interested in ideology and critical thinking and that sort of thing and it 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 does uh wind its way into investing but um i i read a book recently called 100 baggers by chris mayer and i think that's a great little book it's very readable um, just a lot of good common sense um, wisdom in in the book. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Chris Mayer, and he's written several books, but that's his most popular. Is that a recent book? Because the, from the cover on your website, it looks it looks I don't know why it looks old. It's uh, I think it it is a well it depends on your definition of old. I guess <laughs> I think it came out uh, several years ago. Right. So okay. by today's standards, I guess that's old. Yeah. But hundred baggers is, a, is an interesting, it's a study of, um, of stocks going back to, I think 1960. And what he looked for were, um, stocks that went up a hundred times. He, he got this, uh, he mined this database and then he avoided stocks that were, almost impossible to pick because of, of luck, the, like a biotechnology stock that went from t- 10 cents to the $10. Yeah. Um, but, and then he was looking for different characteristics that these, um, these stocks shared and, and how they got there. I think it's a really uh, very interesting book. And especially since, you know, all of us have uh, experienced a lot of these. We may not have uh, owned these 100 baggers, but we're certainly familiar with a lot of the the names that would be on the list. Interesting. So, Tim, my um, mine for this week is uh, is an absolutely hilarious piece in the FT, uh, which I had to read through a clenched fist um, by a lady called Shruti Advani, 
It's called The Awkward Lessons of My Luxury Lockdown in Kensington. <laughs> um, it, it is very difficult. You need a, probably you need a subscription to TFT to read it, sadly. Um, uh, Shruti Advani, it says, is a freelance writer on private banking, which might become everybody's uh, handle on social media in the future, uh, ironically. <laughs> and suffice to say, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a key phrase they use below the, the piece. Um, comments are closed on this story. The pile-in after this piece came out, uh, 167 comments managed to make it under the line before they, they blocked it off to any further criticism. I'll just read you a, a tiny piece, okay, because it's, it's just hilarious. Once the lockdown eased a little, the many bijou boulangeries and epiceries that dot our neighbourhood reopened, life began to look a bit more normal. Only it was not marked by the twin terrors of homeschooling and working from home. Fairly early, I felt justified in bringing in reinforcements. Despite my two degrees in finance, I've been called out on more than one occasion by my seven-year-old son for getting year two maths wrong. This is not good for my self-esteem, nor does it bode well for the boys' continued well-being. After much shouting, we found relief in online tutoring. At £65 to £95 an hour, depending on whether it is for chess or maths, a tutor costs half as much as a psychiatrist we may have needed otherwise. Here comes the pièce de résistance, so brace yourself for this one. As a freelance journalist blessed with an inheritance as well as a venture capitalist husband, my work wardrobe is split in a rather self-contradictory manner between Chanel tweed blazers that I wear to interviews and athleisure for when I toil in front of a computer. Neither fit the brief for working from home while under constant electronic surveillance. Casual but groomed, advised a personal shopper who encouraged me to look at boiler suits in linen or denim. Not one to veer too far from the familiar, I turned instead to Olivier von Hall for silk pyjamas in colours guaranteed to make the dullest Zoom meeting come alive. No way. Now, now it is impossible to tell at, at first glance whether this is actually satire or That's genuine. That's got to be satire, surely. I, I thought it was satirical, but as far as I can tell, and I've read it several times now, as far as I can tell, I think it's the genuine article. Oh, but my it, God. if it is, it is just the funniest and incidentally most completely tone-deaf thing that the, I think the FT's ever published, and that's, and that's saying a lot. Bloody so hell. Just for, if anyone wants to try and find it, then may, maybe someone's placed it outside the FT's uh, uh, whatever you call it. But uh, it's called The Awkward Lessons of My Luxury Lockdown in Kensington by a lady called Shruti Advani. And it is just beyond parody. I'd love to read the comments. The comments must be just fantastic. Uh, Again, it's, I mean, they they, they are administered. They are, you know, uh, whatever the the phrase is. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. um, Yes, yes. uh, So here's an example. I have a horrible feeling that it may not be satire. But there's a nagging doubt in the author's mind that she should be writing this. She should have bought in a ghostwriter £250 a day and used it to bed in a garret. <laughs> That's brilliant. That is brilliant. So I love about comments. There's just someone so good. called Cold Feet. Can we have the nanny's version, please? <laughs> Excellent. That's so good. Uh, so- I didn't want to co- uh, one last one. I didn't want to comment fully too soon after initially reading, just in case I was missing a point. But having had an hour or so to digest this, I feel comfortable saying the following. This is without doubt the worst thing I have read in the FT. Uh, or someone else immediately follows with me, myself, and I. That's the universe. Lowest point of my 20 years of subscription with the FT. Sad. Amazing. It's a, it's a belter. That a belter. is just brilliant. That is just brilliant. Um, so, so, Kevin, you gave us the book, but did you have another media pick for us? 
Oh, I hadn't even hadn't even thought about well, it. Well, that's okay. I mean, that can be that can be your pick because it's a book, a blog, or anything else. So but you're right. You're right, Paul. Because I just looked on Amazon. So it, it looks like it came out in May eighteen, but it, from the cover, it looks like it was written in May nineteen eighteen. Yes, it looks like something yeah. out of the nineteenth you know, century. But yeah. Anyway, but uh, interesting. So I don't think I can top Tim's, um, which is which is like <laughs> just great, but. Uh, but funnily enough, actually, I will will speak about two things. One's a bad one and one's a good one, because I'd like to give a positive one. But I read Stephen King's book, Cell, and bloody hell, it was terrible. I thought it was really... Sorry, is it Stephen King, the horror writer? Yeah, yeah, and I just thought it was really bad, and I just couldn't believe how off it could be, And because uh, obviously he's a, a brilliant writer, but this was mm. just well, way he was He was a brilliant writer by the sound of it. And then... And then I thought I'd watch the film because I, while reading it. Oh, Cell, as in C E double L. So yeah, it's all C-E-L- about the, the zombie, zombie apocalypse driven by mobile yes. phones. Yes. And oh, I just thought this is ridiculous. Alert, as I was reading it, I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, this isn't going to work. This can't work as a film anyway. And I didn't like the story anyway. And I thought it was childish in, in, its, in its technological makeup. But apart um, from that, it was terrific. Apart from that, it was terrific. And then I looked at the film, and the film was despite the fact that it had Samuel L. Jackson in it, um, it was terrible. So it, it was like it confirmed the book. But it, I was just surprised that such a great writer it just goes to show, you know, you, you, you can't always hit the mark. But Well, the what, other sad thing is that John Cusack is in the film, and John Cusack is definitely having a, let's say, he's going through a kind of like early Robert Downey Jr. phase of his career at the yeah, moment, which is a bit sad. It was, it was not good, but that, that, that script... That's it was never going to work. But of course, if it's Stephen King, they got to make it, haven't they? So somebody mm. somebody says, "Well, you know, you you can't you can't not make it." But it, to me, it was just like not good. So, but what I thought was fantastic, and I'm a I'm a big horror fan, and I love my favorite horror film is The Exorcist, and I th- I don't think it's ever been topped by anybody, apart from maybe the Omen films, are just about as Shining. Good. Shining Shining's comes, pretty comes good, well. but The Exorcist is definitely the best, and. Um, uh, we, 2020 uh, life as we know it on this planet right now is also pretty good. Uh, pretty good <laughs> yeah, competition. Absolutely, but there's um, there's a documentary uh, by Mark Commode who I, to be honest, I don't really like him that much, or I didn't until he made this documentary, and now I like him a lot more because he uh, it's called The Fear of God. It's 25 years of The Exorcist on the BBC. It's on the BBC iPlayer, and it's just great. It's really good. Some great interviews in there it's just fantastic so if you if you like the film um it's it's a fantastic documentary and really great insight into the making of the film and the characters and everything else so highly highly watchable and um yeah and it's mark commode's favorite film as well and that surprised me because i don't I don't normally agree with him on on um film choices so so there we go so that's that's it for this week Thank you so much to our guest, Kevin Duffy. Um, just before you go, Kevin, we've got the Coffee Can portfolio as a place to find you. Are you on Twitter or anywhere else for our listeners to find you? Have you migrated you? to Parlay yet? <laughs> um, I'm on, on Twitter, Kevin Duffy, 1929. And that's not my birthday. <laughs> that's a, there's, a subtle, there's a subtle cue there, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, and I've... There's uh, also the background of, of my Twitter page is uh, tulips, so that's very subtle. <laughs> Excellent, love it. That's could, could you superb. not have got the, the South Sea bubble in there just just to sort of round things off? <laughs> no, that wouldn't be subtle enough. Okay. Excellent, <laughs> excellent stuff. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
Thanks for having me. It, it was good time to spend uh, some time on, on a Sunday. Fantastic. Take care. Thanks again. You too. Thanks, Bye Kevin. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. And we will catch you next time. Bye for now. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. How, when did you start doing this? Uh, I think it's about two and a half years ago now. Okay. So you do them, what, once a week? Fortnightly is probably the going rate. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but and we do something in between. Like we have a guest such as yourself, and then uh, then we do a focus on Tim called Extra Tim, and where we just get Tim's latest sort of thoughts on the markets, etc. Um, so yeah, so we intersperse them. So there's you'd be surprised the number of people who, who just can't get enough of inane babbling, uh, Kevin. It's quite <laughs> right. surprising. Yeah, now there's a demand for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it goes, that's the thing that the, the interesting thing about investing and the interesting thing about doing something like this is it, time goes so fast. So we always say it goes really, really fast, Yeah. but you can use that to your advantage. Cause if you want to, if you want to start something and keep it going, time will just go so quickly before you know it, it'll be two and a half years. I mean, I, I wouldn't have guessed that because it's gone so quickly, but, it, but it really and has. Been, and it could hardly have been a more eventful, uh, time yeah you know, given given what we've we've lived through brexit and you know trump and and now and now the great suppression i've got one last quote for you actually uh, on the topic of oh uh, it's something that you i think you just alluded to um uh, it was inane babbling the demand for inane babbling apologies if you heard this one before but it's possibly my all-time favorite quote and uh you may know the source it's an american professor but he said he said to his class uh, it used to be said that if you gave a million monkeys a million keyboards then eventually you'd end up with the complete works of Shakespeare. Now, thanks to the internet, we know this is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's so good. So we'll keep this as a, a little bit of a bonus issue at the end. How about yeah, that? For yeah, those, for those people who, who, who watch beyond the credits. Indeed. Little, Indeed. Extra little filler. Fantastic. Thanks again, chaps. Right. Hopefully... You know, we'll have you back on the show. It'd be really great to to get your thoughts in, say, you know, six months or a year's time. Or however long the financial system lasts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, next, at the moment, at the moment I'm not even renewing my weekly travel card, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure whether to take the over or the under on that. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. Well, thanks again, Kevin. Enjoy the rest of your lockdown. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Pleasure. Okay. Bye, bye now.